Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 28, 2016, and my guest is John Cochran, Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Before joining Hoover, John was a professor of finance at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago for decades, and along with his extensive scholarly output, he blogs eloquently at the Grumpy Economist. He's also a competition sailplane pilot, which means he races gliders. I have to confess that being 18,000 feet above the surface of the earth without an engine scares the heck out of me. So John is both wise and brave. (laughs) We are recording this episode in front of a live audience at a special event for Bay Area alums of the Booth School of Business of the University of Chicago, many of whom have come out to see their former professor, which is lovely. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Pleasure to be here. Now, our topic for today is how you and looking at a wide array of policy issues, would like to reset the debate or reframe the conversation in public policy related to economic uh, areas. And in particular, one of the things you emphasize is that we have underemphasized and really forgotten about economic growth. Uh, It's not really getting any attention in this election cycle. Uh, No one's really talking about it. And in fact, it's it's gotten to be a little bit, I think, uh, even disparaged as a, as a serious topic, and others would say, well, it doesn't matter, we can't do anything about it. So let's start off with the question, why is it important? Yeah, let, let me just back up to our two framing issues, uh, economic growth and uh, how do we step out of this um, uh, kind of frozen discussion we're having that isn't going anywhere and, and reframe the issues in a way that makes some actual progress along a wide swath swath of issues here. So economic growth, um, if you think about the important issues of economic policy, uh, just economic growth is it. It just begins and ends at economic growth. Um, over the long run, 10, 20 years, which is the long, we call that the long run, but 10, 20 years goes by pretty yes, quickly. It does. <laughs> uh, just nothing matters as much as reestablishing or even improving on our traditional growth rates. The U.S. used to grow about 3.5% a year. Now we're down to one5 2 if we're lucky. And the little percentages don't sound like much, but they add up. And, and it means just uh, over the 20 to 30 year horizon, whether we double everyone's standard of living or don't. And w- or whether we get the, the wonderful things, it's not just more stuff, it's better stuff, better health, um, better environment, ability to pay off the government's debts, ability to pay for our social programs. Really just everything hinges on economic growth. And when you, especially when you compare to the other things that are being talked about, um, just more growth solves all of those problems. And it's just a much bigger issue than all of those problems. But of course, a lot of people would argue uh, that, well, growth is just an abstract statement about the macroeconomy. It doesn't really affect everybody's daily life. In fact, most people don't get to participate in it. It only goes to the rich. And that encourages people to start thinking that inequality is more important. And that, of course, has been much more of a focus of the political debate and the policy debate over the last 
five to ten years. There is a, an interesting issue of, of problems of government statistics rather than problems of daily life. But I think, in, in fact, the slowdown of growth is uh, the problem of daily life. What we're really perceiving, you know, people talk about, I don't like to use the word middle class because we're not a class society, but people talk about the stagnation in middle class incomes and so forth. That, that's a phenomenon of the slowdown of growth. And, and I think we don't really, fundamentally, when people say I'm worried about an quality, what they mean is I'm worried that people aren't getting ahead. And if someone else is getting ahead, more or less, doesn't really matter. It, what, what really matters is, are, are, are the bulk of people getting ahead or not? Uh, and if they were, we would be a lot... They worry about inequality, I think, is a, a symptom, not, not a cause of problems. Well, I, I have to agree with you, of course, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people would say it's not what it's about. It's really about, say, the ratio of CEO salaries to to say the average worker as a measure of that uh, they worry about even just employment and the possibilities of the future being much less glowing for the so-called average worker. Do you yeah. worry about that? And, and I think we should worry about that. I, I think the, the sort of think-out-of-the-box aspect of our grand policy is just to listen hard to those problems but not jump to obvious and counterproductive, quote, solutions, unquote. Um, the emergence of inequality, so where does it come from as an economic phenomenon? Um, you read through what most of economics has to say about it, and, and you use the common words income went to. The problem is income is earned by. Yeah. Uh, there is no well grand somebody distributing income. Uh, the rich people would like to, but yeah. Yeah, the people would like to. <laughs> The rich didn't get richer. New people came in and made a lot of money. What, what happened, the returns to skill went up so that, that people living where we are, who know how to program computers and live where we are in Silicon Valley, are making a lot of money. And these are new and different people. And they start new companies, and, and companies have a global reach. They can make a lot of money. Now, now so... That means there's, there's a way that a, a group of people is now making a lot of money. Uh, the economy as a whole isn't doing that well. But let's think about supply and demand. Um, people, if, if when, when cars came in and horses were out of fashion, people who knew how to shoe horses weren't doing that well, and people who knew how to repair cars were making big salaries. Why wasn't there big inequality? Well, because people who were shoeing horses learned how to fix cars. So there's supposed to be, when, when there's a big, when there's a big re- increase in the return to some skill, people should be getting the skill. Um, and, and so why isn't that happening? Well, America's education system is quite broken and not letting a lot of people move into those skill places. America's zoning system <laughs> makes it very hard to move to the Silicon Valley and take it. America's immigration system makes it very hard to, to hire uh, foreigners who know how to do stuff and come in. That would drive down... That. So the inequality that you see is, is a symptom of a lot of other economic problems. Even, and, and let's not just be market about it. We have a more regulated, more cronyist, more... I want to channel Bernie Sanders a little here. Sure. And Elizabeth Warren. They have a point. Hoover uh, Institution meets... University of Chicago, you produce, if they got married, you get the offspring of Bernie Sanders. 
a bit of a stretch, but I, I couldn't resist. In an economy that is where the rewards are more and more towards you need to get the government regulators, you, there's a monopoly you need to get in, people are going to be making money out of those protected businesses. So that's where a lot of inequality comes from as well. So, these are all symptoms of a problem. Leaving things screwed up and then just taking your money and giving it to someone else just gets to make the matters worse. Let's so get back to the growth. I want to talk for a minute. It's a digression, but it's just important and it's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the the education system because I say that often myself. I say the big single the biggest thing we need to fix is the education system. Give people a chance to join this economy. There's always the possibility, and I think it's an, I don't I'm agnostic on this because I don't think we really know. It's possible that. There's a limit to how many people can do the jobs that are now more in, more in, more in demand. Uh, the so-called STEM fields, they're not the only things that are in demand. They're not the only things that pay well. But STEM fields do pay well, and it's also pretty clear to me that not everyone can do STEM stuff. So what do you think the bulk of American young people are going to be trained for in a future world that's plausible that our current education system is failing them now? And I, it's a trick question, but it's really a rhetorical question. I'm not sure. It's not a, not, I'm not expecting you to say, uh, well, uh, you know, hydraulic engineer. But, <laughs> but the question is, it's not obvious that our standard answer is right that it's an educational problem. It may be something more structural that's going on. Well, there are great barriers to moving out, especially moving out of poor communities, sort of the, 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 the parts of, of very poor America. Education is a big problem. Let's be economists. Everybody doesn't have to move into STEM. Yeah. If, if the 10% who have the talent can move into STEM fields, that drives down the returns to STEM and drives up the returns to, to whatever doing else. the other yeah. things. Right. If we let in some more immigrants who will start a business, they will hire more of those low-skilled workers. I mean, even low-skilled Americans know how to speak English. That's a valuable, a big, valuable talent. skill. Yep. Um, so, so becoming a society where people can move around and use all sorts of different skills, uh, then, then things equalize on their own. And as good economists, we should know it's not up to us or to some federal bureaucracy to decide, aha, the future for everybody is in hydraulic (laughs) engineering. Every time they try to do that, they get it wrong. Yeah, correct. (laughs) So let's let's get rid of the barriers and then let people figure it out. So before we move on to some some specific areas, I just want to ask one last question about uh, growth. A lot of people, um, a lot of economists have argued recently that our problems with growth, the overall stagnation uh, or slowdown at least and possibly stagnation of the economy is a big structural problem. It's not a policy problem. It's just a reality. It's the new normal. It's certainly the new normal in the data. But do you think it's the new normal in, in the fact that something has changed fundamentally in the productivity of the U.S. economy? So let, let's just back up a little bit to clarify the argument. So long-run growth comes from one thing and one thing only, productivity. Uh, new and better ways of doing things, new and better products, new and better companies. Uh, it doesn't come from 90% of the things that we talk about. So, <laughs> you know, the Federal Reserve stimulus programs, uh, all, you know, all, even anti-inequality programs. I'm sorry, over 10 to 20 years, it's about productivity. Uh, we don't our ancestors uh, may have, may have, you know, you might have had a, a grandparent who, who dug coal with a pickaxe. And how did you get so much richer? Not by your union getting him higher wages and he still digs coal with a pickaxe at 20 cents an hour, not 10 cents. It's because there's one guy left and he uses a bulldozer, right? So growth comes from productivity. And, then all the, and productivity 
everybody likes growth in someone else's backyard. <laughs> Productivity comes from new companies doing things new ways and making life very uncomfortable for everybody else. You know, Uber is the great example. Uber is, is like, that's a great productivity enhancement. It's putting a lot of people to work who otherwise couldn't go to work, and the taxi companies hate it. Uh, and most of economic regulation is designed to stop growth. It's designed to protect the old ways of doing things. So, get you know, the, what we need for growth-oriented policies is exactly that kind of innovation, that kind of new companies coming in and upending the status quo that, that make everybody uncomfortable and run to their politician to say, no, you've got to stop this. You know, I don't always think about that. I have a tendency, I think, to look at the... Um, what we would call in economics rent-seeking, the attempts to preserve uh, what you already have through regulation rather than excellence, that just sort of, uh, sort of, that offends me morally. And so some of my uh, antagonism to the barriers to entry that Uber and uh, Airbnb face and others, it just, it just I find it... Um, it's frustrating to me. I find it offensive intellectually, morally. And I, and I love the idea that I can get a ride anytime I need one and know that it's coming in three minutes or four minutes or whatever it is and not have to take the money out of my pocket, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a productivity thing. It's, it's also having a much wider range of impacts beyond that one market than is obvious at first glance. And it's good to remember that. It's kind of important. Yeah, I think the, the best argument for it is, is not the moral one, it's the practical one. This is what made us so much richer than our grandparents and so much healthier and, and what brought us all these great products. So. And our grandparents would be thrilled to see how well off we are, even though their lives may have been challenged by the, the competitive process and creative destruction. I always emphasize that because I think that's just so important that when you say, well, this is hard for me, you know, I understand if you're a cab driver, it's hard for you. But do you want to live in a country where your children or grandchildren are going to live the same life you did or maybe a little bit worse? Or do you want to give them a chance to evolve and change and grow and have a new set of opportunities? And I think most people are happy to have some economic difficulty, even though at the time they're not so, not so well off. Now, you asked a question of, of why are we slowing down? And, uh, and uh, there is an economic discussion about this right now. And I'd say there's three views of the world. One, um, the economy is functioning as well as it can. We just ran out of new ideas. Yeah. Um, productivity comes from new ideas, ways and new ways of doing things, as much as new iPhones, as, as Southwest Airlines figures out how to turn a plane around in 20 minutes and it still takes United an hour and a half. Um, you know. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. Just new ways. I just wanted to say, it's not just new products, it's new ways of doing things, usually embodied in, in new companies. Well, we just ran out of ideas. Um, that's, uh, Bob Gordon has written a very influential book basically on that. We're in the valley here. Here. So, you know, when, when people say stuff like that, they say, you got to be kidding because we got all this great stuff here if we could only get the regulators to let us do it. Uh, the second view is that we have perpetual lack of demand. Uh, we are a secular stagnation, and what we need is, is for the government to borrow a ton of money and build, well, the advocates of this want us to build like a high-speed train from Tonopah to Winnemucca. They... <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, uh, the, white, the ice wall of Westeros along the southern border is infrastructure and would have stimulus, but you don't hear them. I don't want it either. But, you know, what we need is just big no public works programs, you know, blow a lot of money because there's lack of demand. Otherwise, the economy's fine. Yeah, I, don't, I don't go with that one either. My view is that we have um, 
creeping regulation, sanding the gears. It's not a, what's hard about this is every little market is screwed up. There isn't, there isn't one big, aha, we just need a stimulus program and we're all done. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that if every little market is screwed up, then, then um, uh, the, the economy as the whole slows down. And it's each, each little market is screwed up in its own way. Right. If it was just, say, wage and price controls throughout the economy, you'd say you get rid of that. Things might look a lot more uh, rosier. But you argue, and I, I want you to expand on this, you argue that we face really a lack of respect for the rule of law. And tell me what that means to you, what rule of law means to you, and why you think it's so important. Yeah, and here's a, here's a good place to start trying to break out of the standard right-left partisan. It's like a, a very old marriage where they're yelling at each other, you know, <laughs> you're a terrible cook, well, you don't pick up your socks, we're just getting nowhere. Um, <laughs> So Can I leave that lying there on the... That's awesome, but I, I'm going to refrain from adding anything to it. That's our economic... That's the level of our economic discussion. So our job is, is to help our, our, our betters as sort of marriage counselors to, to break <laughs> away from this discussion and, and get somewhere. So especially in the context of regulation, I, I think we're seeing regulation is, is really hurting American business, hurting innovation. But the, the, then the argument says, you know, he says we need more regulation, she says we need less regulation, and, and we're kind of getting nowhere with that. Um, so what, what I'm seeing when I'm out there is, is not so much the quantity of regulation, but the nature of it. Uh, it's not like in most stuff that's, that's out there, and, and think of healthcare, think of banking, uh, think of any actual business. It's not like there's, there's a, a, a set of rules and you just read the rules and you're done. And they might be onerous, but you they know what they onerous. are. So I'll say a good thing about a government agency. I'm, I'm a pilot, as, as you mentioned. The FAA has a long rule book, and most of it's really silly. But if you read the rule and obey the rule, you're done. You don't have to, you know, ask for permission for something. You, you know, you obey this silly rule, and, and that's the end of that. So I know from talking to you that one of the rules, which I mentioned it earlier, is you can't go above 18,000 feet. Correct? Yeah. And 17,999, you're fine. 18,001, and the FAA is going to see that on your transponder, and you're, you're in trouble. Now, most regulation that we have now is so, it, part of it's complex, part of it's the vagueness, but it is, uh, the nature of it is that um, there's not just some rule, you know the rule, you obey the rule, you just, I, I come to you and say, would you approve my plan? Uh, the Fed stress test is an example. They just come in and they kind of make them up, you pass, you fail. There's no way r- really to know it. So the issues with regulation are, are they, the, the, the things we got used to on, on rule of law, if you, if you are charged with a crime, you have the ability to see the evidence and challenge the evidence. If the EPA says, no, we've determined you're no good, you don't have that right. You have the right to appeal. Well, where's your right to appeal? Most of the regulatory agencies are, are prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner uh, all rolled into one. And this kind of power, now it's very attractive, and, and the danger I see, like the rule of law itself is fundamentally there to protect your political freedom. What banker dares speak out against the Dodd-Frank Act? What health insurer dares speak out against the, 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 uh, the, the enforcers of, uh, against the ACA itself or the, uh, uh, the uh, administration that, uh, uh, that, that uses it? I mean, when the regulator has the power to just shut down your business, people learn to shut up very quickly. That's why this sort of thing keeps going. So the, the issue on regulation is 
let's bring back the rule of law. I think this is a way to get out of the more versus less. Is it simple and precise or vague and complex? Are the rules knowable or do they come after you ex post? Oh, you know, you were 10 feet away from, a, from an endangered seal. We're going to throw you in, in jail for a while. They, they actually do stuff like that. Can you read the plain text of the rule or do you need to get some fixer with, with, with uh, connections in the agency to, to get you through? Do you have the right from appeal? Is it insulated from the political process? Can they just delay endlessly? Uh, or is there a right to some, some, some answer? These are all sort of the, the rule of law protections, and I, I think the answer to our regulatory problem isn't just the stale more or less. It, it's to bring back that, that, that kind of process. So I think that's a great insight. Uh, the question is, I mean, the challenge of this as a to make it a compelling argument to, for people to get behind is to convince them that that something has changed, that there's something new here. I mean, if I go back, you know, many people collect uh, measures of regulation. You, they look at, say, compliance costs. They look at the pages in the Federal Register. Uh, but those are blunt, blunt, blunt. They're, that's not a good measure. You're talking about something very nuanced and subtle. And one response to it would be, well, it's always been that way, right? It's always been a lousy, vague, opaque, uh, non-rule of law system if you want to run a business. You, to convince me, you're going to have to show me it's gotten worse. Can you do that? Well, you got four, you got, I'll give you three minutes. <laughs> we often, we live too much in economics. Uh, we're sort of like the, the drunk looking for his car keys where the light is, <laughs> yeah. even though we know the problem, the keys got left over there in the dark. You know, we go after things we can measure. Correct. Uh, and and the, uh, the difficulty a company has in getting approval for its regulations, there isn't a government statistic on that like there is for the unemployment rate or, or, or the CPI. Uh, there's a lot of anecdote, but the anecdote doesn't add to data. I, I think that's a challenge for researchers. Can, can we measure this sort of thing? But if you talk to people, not just... So a, a prominent left-wing economist said to me, Ah, oh, John, you're, yeah, you're out to lunch. I'm out here in the Valley. I'm talking to all the executives. They're not having any problems. But the answer to which is, wait a minute, you're talking to people who still are in business. Yeah. It's the it's ones who aren't in business anymore. A little selection problem there. The one who couldn't get their approvals. The ones who's, who languished in front of the FDA for eight years and finally they were ran out of money. Those, those are the guys you need to And of course, the other fact is that industry's here for, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's actually um, a fact of life of political economy. The industry's here relatively left alone, right? Whereas if you're in banking, if you're in health, if you're in certain sectors, it's a very different environment. I think that where I'll concede your point most dramatically, is, and you'll tell me if I'm right, right or wrong here, uh, I'm not sure. Is Dodd-Frank finished? No. Is, is the Affordable <laughs> Care Act actually written? In, right? It's been, it's been the law of the land. Both of those have been the law of the land for a while now. Usually you'd think you would literally at least know what's in it, even if you can't understand it. You know, the joke was, well, 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 we'll pass it down, then we'll later find out what's in it. You can't even do that yet. Well, one of the difficulties of our, our regulatory scheme is that Congress passes 2,000-page bills that then tell the agencies to write 20,000 pages of rules, and, and they aren't even done making the rules. And then the rules are things like, oh, you know, you shall 
not have a, a abusive or manipulative sales plan for your for your waters, and then who knows what that means. Yeah. So so these things are still growing, uh, but actually, you know, Congress is waking up, and, and they've figured out that they they made a mistake in writing these loose laws, and they're starting now to walk back. So that there are there are these. I, I think the return of rule of law and regulation is is something that we may see. I'm not the first one to notice that this is a problem. Yeah. I always like to hope, I think naively and probably foolishly, that somehow people would be shamed into thinking it would be inappropriate but, to write such rules. I, I have to concede that's As probably, economists, so we're, we're stepping outside what we know. But as a legal matter, ours, we moved in a very different way. We used to have laws that were made by Congresses and, and enforced by judges. And most of what counts as law now is made by regulatory agencies and and enforced by them uh, yeah. out, quite outside the legal system. Yeah, the so-called administrative state, which I think is one of the things that fascinates me about it is how little the average person knows about it. I know almost nothing about it, and I sh- I'm a professional economist. I'm, you know, in theory, I should know about it. I know virtually nothing about it. We sort of assume that when a bill is passed that it's implemented, but of course, as you point out, dozens, hundreds, thousands of rules get put into place. In that whole process is a black box now, to us, not to the people I suspect who are being affected by it. To I your, suspect they're working away. To your question, there are there are plenty of measures that say the American economy is losing its dynamism. Uh, I think one new bank has been chartered since the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act, and it was designed to help Amish people. Uh, no That's new nice. health insurers. In fact, lots of health insurers are disappearing. That's We're heading towards uh, industries. Banking and, and health insurance are heading towards sort of a very European model. Three or four um, very Megalith, regulated of... Yeah. Uh, um, but back and forth, you know, they're, they're not going to go bankrupt. The regulators can say we're going to be mean, but there's three or four, nobody enters, nobody leaves, and you're going to have the same three or four businesses there 20 years from now than you do now. The regulators, when they quit, they go to make a nice salary uh, back at the companies. Uh, the companies, uh, they take their turn with the regulators, and no innovation, uh, nothing. So you can measure things like what's happening to the number of businesses, what's happening to new business formation is way down. People don't move much in the U.S. anymore. So, so there are measures of, of that sort. Agreed. Well, let's look at some specifics. Um, let's start with, again, a, you know, a hugely important area that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention these days, which is taxes. Um, we have a incredibly complicated tax system, which... Uh, benefits mainly people who help people with their taxes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and help people who pass laws that give them special loopholes, yes. And the people who <laughs> qualify for the special loopholes. But, you know, in a way, it's funny. And I, we say those things, and they sound like cl- cliches, right? It sounds, oh, yeah, special loopholes. But there really are special loopholes, aren't there? So talk about what we might do differently um, in the area of taxes? In, in taxes as regulation, I think another theme that we should be screaming from the mountaintops is bring a reasonable simplicity to our public life. Uh, you know, it, it's just ridiculous that we have 50,000 pages of regulations that nobody knows what they are. Uh, simple, robust systems are going to work a lot better. It's rather extraordinary that you can give somebody's life to six different tax preparers and they can't 
agree on what the tax bill is. So that and this, I mean, that is really, we, we sort of, again, we, it's a joke. Oh, yeah, it's really funny. They can't quite. That's stunningly bad for democracy, isn't it? I mean, it's horrifying. Well, the, what, what, the, what the peasants with the pitchforks are telling us <laughs> is they've gotten wind of the incredible yeah. unfairness. Uh, you know, when a system is this complicated, you know the guys with the connections are getting ahead. And, and for a long time, we put up with it. And now that economic growth is slowed, I think you're seeing people not putting up for it, with it. And there's this pretense that the tax code or the regulatory code can, is, is a fine instrument that can, you know, that can manage exactly what material should a watch be made out of uh, as opposed to simple. Clear. Okay, so I made my case for simplicity and clarity. Let's talk about taxes because I think it's a great place to discuss not just the economic question, which is actually quite easy, but the question, how do we get out of the tired discussion? So if you ask an economist, uh, so you have to ask an economist who isn't in public trying to get a job with a politician, but ask him in private, give him a beer, what should the tax system look like? Pretty much any economist will say, we should have a uh, tax on consumption, on, on people, on consumption, uh, at a relatively uh, a, a, with low marginal rates and, and a very uh, and a very wide base, uh, pretty much every bipartisan commission takes you in that direction, yeah. and yet we can't get there now. Why not? Because the discussion is in this very tired. So the discussion is about higher taxes versus lower taxes. And it's instantly about who pays the tax. You put out a tax plan, and what happens? Oh, well, a family of four with two dogs and a cat who lives in Fresno is going to be paying $256.20 more. It's all about who pays more or less. But you took your economics class. The number one thing that matters is what are the incentives? Uh, How does this distort economic activity? So um, how do we get towards something like a a consumption tax on people? so that's we should I want to eliminate the corporate tax completely why because not because corporations shouldn't pay corporations never pay corporations every cent that they pay comes from higher prices lower wages comes comes out of your pockets and if there's a corporate tax then there's an immense incentive to go to washington and get deductions and loopholes and tax extenders and all the other crazy stuff that they do um, the cronyism that infects our political system the only way to get rid of the cronyism is get, get rid of the tax. Um, but we're trying to do too many things. The problem with our tax code is instantly we get into, we're trying to raise revenue for the government. We're trying to subsidize all sorts of different activities. Uh, we argue about the level of government spending implicitly in the level of taxes. And we're trying to subsidize, uh, uh, subsidize. So, so raise revenue, subsidize activities, transfer income, and, and decide the total size of the government, all four. And, and the key to marriage counseling is when you're talking about four things at a time, you're never getting anywhere. <laughs> so I think the key is to break these apart. We, we, should, have, we should discuss the structure of the tax code. Now, when, every time they discuss the structure of the tax code, they talk about the rates. We'll have one rate at 16.2%, another rate at 22.5%, and then the arguments start. How about we discuss the structure of the tax code with the rates blank? Let, let Russ and me do the structure of the tax code, and we'll let Bernie Sanders fill in the rates. Good deal. Or we'll discuss the rates separately. <laughs> Actually, we're going to have so many friends, John. <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> I meant that as a joke. I know you did. But I think you need to discuss the. I think you can come to agreement, left and right, on a structure of the tax code. 
if you're not simultaneously arguing about the progressivity of the tax code and uh, so and the subsidy code. So, for example, we should get rid of the mortgage. In- Let me take a sacred cow: the mortgage interest deduction. The mortgage interest reduction is equivalent to taxing middle-class, hardworking people and sending checks to people in Palo Alto who have just refinanced million-dollar homes. It subsidizes high-income people who pay high tax rates and therefore can take a big deduction. It subsidizes people who have big houses and people who borrow money for big houses. If you said, we're going to do this on budget as a subsidy, the, the peasants with pitchforks would be out in the streets, and properly so. Rightfully so. So, but how do you get rid of this? Uh, well, let's change the discussion. We'll have the tax code to raise revenue, and we'll have the subsidy code. Sure. As we'll sit down with Bernie and fill in the rates later, we'll sit down with all the interest and say, fine, we're not going to rule out the mortgage interest reduction. We're just going to do it as a subsidy on budget. You want to propose that we send, uh, send checks to people who borrow a lot of money for the house? Fine. We'll talk about that. It just, it's going to be on budget, and it's going to be a check. Uh, nonprofits, we should get rid of that. I hate to say this in this institution. I might get fired. <laughs> the charitable interest, the, the, the charitable deduction is, is a similar, we should get rid of that. And, of course, if we got rid of the corporate tax, there would be no such thing as nonprofit versus profit, so this whole business would go away. You made an interesting point in a paper you wrote about how many athletes have uh, foundations which seems like it's a great PR thing for them. You think they're doing all this good work, but there is this nepotistic part of it, which is... Yeah, charitable foundation. So if you've got a lot of money, set up a charitable foundation because that's how you... Then you can uh, use the charitable foundation to fly all your relatives in and out of town on private jets to come for the board meetings, and that's how you can avoid the estate tax because the foundation lives on, but all your kids can keep working for it at high salaries. And, and so I didn't think about that. It's such a disturbing and cynical view. You, John, but I think you're onto something there. Now, so carry on. Get rid of the corporate tax. We don't have it, but if you, if let's 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 not. We don't have to decide this when we're fixing the tax code. Yes, we're going to have that as part of the subsidy code. If you guys want to pass, propose a bill where every American gets to say, I want, I want to give money to Russ Roberts, and I want the federal government to match my contribution, and if, my, if I'm a rich person, they're going to give a higher match than if I'm a poor person, that's fine. That's exactly what the charitable deduction does. Fine. It's bizarre. S- suggest yeah. that bill, and, and actually, I, I think we might have some mat- matching is a good idea. It might not go exactly that way. Uh, and, you know, the tax, tax deduction... So it kind of bugs me around Palo Alto. Everyone's got these Tesla cars. All the middle-aged men in Palo Alto drive around Tesla. They're really cool cars, okay? And the only thing that bugs me is I look at everyone go by, and I know that I spent $7,500 on on that car. So, But that's a tax deduction. That's fine. We don't have to argue about that when we're fixing the tax code. Put that on your green roofs and your solar cells and your electric cars and all that. Fine. Just propose it, put it on budget as a separate matter. The way to clean up the tax code, the tax code raises money for the government. Separately, we will redistribute income, largely by sending people checks, and that'll be on budget. We'll talk about how much we send people checks. Um, and, and the subsidy code. The, the U.S. tries to pretend that we spend a lot less money than we do. And the way we do it is, is we have mandates. We say, you shall provide X, Y, and Z for your workers. That makes it look like we're not taxing and subsidize. You, you get a tax credit for X, Y, and Z. That makes it look like we're not taxing and subsidizing. But we actually are. So, yeah, we're going to tax more and we're going to spend more. 
it's going to look like it. We're going to recognize what we're doing. But if we can separate that out, then we can fix the tax code to raise revenue at minimum economic distortion. I think I believe enough in democracy that we can do a far better job of income redistribution and of subsidizing activities if those things are teared, torn out of the tax code and, and, and done on budget in the open. So I have to say I'm learning a lot more than I like about the differences between you and me. Uh, when I see... Wait, wait, wait. And, and about myself. I'm learning I'm, something I'm, about myself. I've got to interrupt you. So I'm not proposing... What I'm trying to do is start a conversation. I have my answers on how much we should be subsidizing I things. I have my answers. But I, I want to get somewhere. We're stuck in a bad marriage with totally people agree. who have different answers to these things. Uh, how could we separately discuss them so we make progress in a democracy uh, on these tough issues? And how can we get to a compromise that we're going to be unhappy with that is much less destructive for economic growth and fundamentally for that democracy? My observation is about our sociological differences. So when, when you see a Tesla go by, you see $7,500 coming out of our pockets. When I see it go by... In the license plate spot, before they get their license plate, it says zero emissions. <laughs> and that offends me because it takes a lot of carbon-based stuff to get the, create the electricity to push that car around. And if everybody had a Tesla, it would be an enormously polluting car through its energy source. So I just the, it's, the, it's the offensiveness, the morality again, the injustice of that zero emissions is what drives me crazy. $7,500 of my own pocket, okay, I'm resent that too, but... <laughs> Around here, actually, they, they do like to put zero emissions on, on their license plates. And, and were I younger... Uh, and a little braver, I, I would I would put signs saying "powered by coal." Exactly, exactly. Uh, some man who flies a device without an engine at eighteen thousand feet, but he's not brave enough to. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so I'm sympathetic, of course, as you probably know and realize to to your argument about taxes. It's it, and again. What irks us about these things may be different. You may be bothered by the incentives. What bothers me, among other things, is the thousands of hours that really smart people spend trying to evade and manipulate that code. Who could be doing something to make the world a better place rather than making sure that people's money isn't taken away by the government? And and especially corporate taxes because they have the time and manpower to spend to, to spend all their effort. I mean, all these inversions we're hearing about. All the best minds are sitting about thinking about how do I move my money around around the world to lower taxes, as opposed to making better products make, yeah. for you and me. So, so that really bugs me. I, but, I did want to so back to energy for just yeah. a second. There's another case where I think there's one of these grand bargains. We need to work to these grand bargains where we listen and find a way to achieve what both want. And so there's a proposal that I'm I'm actually hearing coming from real environmentalists and and real libertarians, which is, look, let's let's trade. You guys can have a carbon tax. In return for, we get rid of all the crony subsidies, all the special, uh, this business gets a federal contract, all of the HOV lanes, special tax deductions, and so on and so forth. The environmentalists are going that way because they realize that all the little stuff isn't doing any good to reduce carbon. And the libertarians like it because, yeah, they might not want the carbon tax in the first place, but at least there's a way to solve this problem in a way that's much more economic efficient, much more efficient of people's time and effort, much less distorting of which technology actually uh, gets used, and much less distorting of our political system. So listeners know that I'm skeptical about the ability of 
econometricians to measure things with any precision and to separate out complicated causal problems. But most economists could come to some measure of the total gains that would come from the kind of reforms you're talking about, and they'd be very large. They wouldn't be a precise estimate, but when you add up the cost and time, the incentive effects, the wasted effort, the lost uh, productivity because things aren't being done that could be productive, it's a big number. And that raises the question of, if you're so smart, why don't we have better policy, right? Why is reforming this system so difficult? So one way to, to phrase it is, is a grand bargain ever possible in our current political environment on any of these issues? And are, and are we just wasting our time here having fun? <laughs> Not that it isn't fun. I'm having uh, a good time myself. But. Uh, I, well, um, I think we need to be optimistic because the choice is grand bargain or the end of Western civilization. So take your pick. Uh, uh, so it's not the road to serfdom. <laughs> it's even worse. What do you mean the end is? <laughs> um, we have had grand bargains before. The, the 86 tax cuts, the, the Carter era deregulations. Um, it's not the, the art of the politician is putting together... Uh, I, I, I was going to say putting together a deal, but that is now a, a yeah, word that's been co-opted that. for yeah. something else. <laughs> um, getting every so on taxes, what we need the current problem is when you say let's have a tax reform and we're going to do stuff like get rid of the health care deduction, the mortgage interest deduction, the energy tax credit, and so forth. Well, the energy people, ever the housing builders, they're all in your office saying, "Oh no, that's the end of the world if we get rid of my thing." The problem is each one says, well, they've all got their thing, so I'm going to make darn sure I got mine. Correct. And, and the job of a great politician or, is, or a great party or a great, you know, those who form the coalitions is to get us all to, okay, I'm giving up mine, so I'm going to make damn sure you give up <laughs> yours too. Yeah, that's the way Not just I give up mine so I'll, I, I understand I'll we're all giving up so I'll suffer. Yeah. You need to form a coalition where everyone is part of the coalition saying, okay, if I'm giving up the mortgage interest deduction, you're giving up the health care tax deduction, you're giving up the energy deductions, uh, you're getting rid of you know, all the other stuff that's going on. Um, that's, uh, so I'm an economist, not a politician. That's their job. That's what we should be voting them in for. That's, right. and, and good ones, you know, that's what they do. But one of, the, one of our jobs is to point out that the challenge of creating those coalitions comes from the fact that if I propose a policy where there are a lot of losers or there's a small number of really big losers, it's going to be much harder. And, and I guess one way to think about it is, you know, in a time of crisis, you might maybe be able to mobilize people because it's the end of Western civilization. Hang it over them that they might make a sacrifice for the good of the country. Otherwise, it's what's in it for me. And what's in it for me is really, I think, the biggest barrier to these kind of changes. Well, I think we should stop playing amateur politician or political scientist. Uh, I think where you and I, as economists, can help is to outline all the areas where our, our, our political friends are stuck in a stale argument. Because in many cases, they're stuck, they, you know, they... A politician has to spend 16 hours a day raising money. Yeah. So if they're not that great on, on the second-order derivatives or on you know, the supply effects or, or you know... Dead it, weight it's loss. Forget a, for, or, on the, or on just the basics, that you don't transfer income by distorting prices. You know, that's the, one of the most basic things in economics, that there's always a supply response, it, you know, to, to see things. So our job is to help... We're the marriage counselors. We're not 
<laughs> Let's find those out-of-the-box ways of addressing each of these problems, as we've talked about some, that will help them to, to listen to each other and, and form those grand bargains. So just to add another pessimistic note, um, sorry, I just I, I love the phrase uh, peasants with the pitchforks, and it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The Court Jester, which uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie with Danny Kaye. It's a, it's a neglected classic, and for those of you listening at home will pre- who've seen it will appreciate, I'm just going to say the chalice with the palace has the brew that is true, but the peasants with the pitchforks have the poison, and you won't get it if you haven't seen it, but check it out, you'll find it, and it's, uh, it's one of the greatest uh, moments in cinema. You can probably get it on YouTube, and I'll put, if I can find it, uh, I'll, I'll put a link up to it, but I have to note that the peasants with the pitchforks right now advocate for things that move us away from the directions mainly that you and I would like. On one side of the, of the divide, we have the peasants with the pitchforks who want to tear down Wall Street and who are supporting uh, Bernie Sanders. On the other side of the divide, we have the peasants with the pitchforks who want to put up a wall between the United States and Mexico. And I know you're not happy about that. I'm going to talk, ask you in a minute if we get to it about immigration. That is a big challenge, uh, that that the taste in the general public for the kind of reforms that you and I would want to see doesn't seem to be there. But I, I, So when I use the word peasants with pitchforks, I, that's actually a dangerous word because it sounds... But what I'm echoing is is how much disdain our elites have for the democracy that elects Oh, it's not your disdain? Okay, Not sorry. mine at all. <laughs> I think that people have a lot of wisdom. But the average person is busy, and it's not the average person's job to... Our economy, our society is a cause and effect machine with, with very delicate relationship between where you push the lever and, and, and what actually happens. That's what's beautiful. That's what's so fun about understanding economics. You know, that you subsidize X, that doesn't mean we all get richer because it costs Y and you all get poorer. And, and seeing those things is hard. The average person senses that the system is rigged, that growth is too slow, that there's sand in the gears. But it's, it's the job of a leader to unite those feelings and, and to give them expression. And I don't, uh, I don't blame the peasants with pitchforks at the moment. I blame very much uh, the themes that leaders have chosen in order to, 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 to exploit their, their, genuine, um, their genuine feelings that something is very wrong. Totally agree. And, I- and, and, and to be specific, so, so this, this, the wall did not come up from the bottom. That was an, you know, Mr. Trump's idea all by himself. It's uh, true. It, it wasn't, we uh, just say one for thing for him, it didn't come out of some focus group, some, you know, <laughs> what's the idea that most of you like? Oh, build a wall against Mexico. Yeah, no, that, that at least 50 feet, too. Yeah. Really high. Um, You've seen Game of Thrones, you know, you know what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be huge, big. Um, Let's move on to an area you've written a lot about that I think is a huge challenge. It is part of this, I think, populist uh, concern, which is the financial system mm. and the way the government treats it. Uh, we've mentioned, you've mentioned Dodd-Frank, quote, landmark legislation, probably the second after the Affordable Care Act. I can't decide which is worse, Obamacare, which is not the name of it, so it's, that shouldn't be the name of it, or the Affordable Care Act, which is just sort of an Orwellian phrase to make it sound great. Uh, it could end up being true, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not an expert on it, but, uh, but I guess that's the official name. The, the, the Dodd-Frank is the, is the second most important legislation of, of the last eight years. Uh, it purported to solve 
many of the problems that caused the financial crisis, you don't agree. Uh, what, what, what's wrong with it, and what should replace it? So both the, the ACA, uh, the proper name for Obamacare, <laughs> and, and Dodd-Frank, you have to understand, so I'm, I, I think the way to, you have to understand what people are thinking. They're not dumb people. They're, they're trying to do their best. And both of them are, are classic cases of the little old lady who swallowed a fly. Uh, and I don't know if you know that the children, she swallows a fly, then she swallows a spider to catch the fly, and then she swallows she swallowed to catch a spider. There's a cow eventually, I think. It, it, ends, with a, there? I, it ends with a horse. She died, of yeah, course. There it is. <laughs> uh, but each step makes sense. Um, because, and that's exactly what happened here. So a bank regulation, the, the Dodd-Frank Act was nothing new. It was just, I forget what the horse is supposed to swallow. It was the horse <laughs> to the cow. In the 1930s, the, we had a financial crisis, and the government went to this idea of, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to stop the financial crisis by guaranteeing debts so that, so that people don't run to get their money out. Oh, but then there's a problem. If you guarantee the bank's debts, then that's like saying, hey, I'm going to guarantee your debts. Go to Las Vegas, you know, and whatever you ring up. So there's a problem there. So now we have to have regulations. No, you can only go to the craps table, and you have Can't to spend more than this on a bed. And, yeah. and then, of course, if, if we do that, then you're going to find some way around, and, and then you're going to lose money again. Then I have to guarantee bigger debts, and then more regulation. And you can see the spiral. Every time something blows apart, what do you do? We have to guarantee the debts to bail out to stop the crisis. And then, oh gosh, now we have another layer of, of, of incentives for you to behave badly, so we add another layer of regulation. It gets bigger, and, and that's just what Dodd-Frank had. Uh, the the ACA was the same thing. We had, we had the same spiral of problems out of health insurance, which, which we'll probably treat later, given <laughs> the time. So that's what went wrong, and, and, and now you have this monstrous thing that it is swallowed a horse, and, and it's not going to die. It's just going to turn into, like, the French phone company 1965. Um, you know, just this slurotic thing until, you know, fintech may come up around it, we hope. Um, fintech being... Being ways out the unregulated system comes in. Although, you were saying how wonderful Silicon Valley is. You know, you know Google has a lot of contacts with Washington now, yep. and the FTC just regulated the internet like a utility. So we'll see how long this stays. Yeah, it's true. Unregulated. It's true. So, the answer is you got to go back to the beginning. Let's find simplicity in our in our public life. Um, the system of you get to borrow a lot of money and we'll bail out bail things out when when you go wrong is is we can't do that anymore. Unfortunately, technology means we can go back and re-examine that basic premise that banks have to banks can uh, get your money by always letting you come and take it out anytime you want. That's the basic problem because that causes the run. So if, if we set up a banking system where you go to the bank and it looks just like it is now, except it's like a money market fund, and the price might go down. If, if you own stocks, and, and the, you can't go get your money out of the stock market anytime you want. You can't, the, you can't force a company to go bankrupt. So if banks were set up like that, where they issued something that looked like stock, rather than issuing something where you can come get your, get your stuff anytime you want, then there would be no financial crises. We wouldn't need any regulation. It would be the, the whole system would be much simpler. And that, that was a decision get... we decided not to do in the 1930s, because I don't think it would have worked in the 1930s. Now it can work beautifully. You can just swipe a card, sell some bank stock have cash in 20 milliseconds. Yeah, so you're saying I will be able to get my money whenever I want because I do want that, right? You're just saying the way that what will underlie that will be different. You will, what is no longer necessary for you to have instant liquidity, 
you don't need a promise that the value of your claim is always the same. So if you have a stock, the stock can go up and down. Now, you can sell the stock instantly, but you can't go to the company and say, I gave you $100, the stock price is 90 I want my $100 back, and if you don't, if, if you don't give me the $100 back, you're bankrupt. You go to a bank and you can do that. That's why banks fail. <laughs> but companies that issue a lot of equity simply cannot go bankrupt. There can't be runs. There can't be financial crises. So and so we don't need the whole array of regulators telling what to do. Let me just add, it's really hilarious how much effort we spend on regulating bank risks. Right? We have to because banks are so risky. Wait, what are banks' assets? Banks' assets are loans. Banks' assets are bond. They're fixed income. They're about the safest thing around. The, the cash flow of any venture capital startup here, the cash flow of Google, the cash flow of, the, of Facebook is much, much riskier than any of the assets of a bank. Why are we spending all of this effort regulating the assets of the safest companies in the world? Oh, because they're leveraged like 90 to 1. <laughs> Meaning they're using borrowed money they're rather than They're using borrowed equity. money and, and the taxpayer standing behind the borrowed money. If they issued equity, these would be just safe, boring companies needing practically no regulation. Which, of course, is one of the political problems that you can't, if you're not doing anything for somebody, you can't sell them anything. So politicians are not going to be able to extract any resources from them. But let's put, let's put, again, that political economy to the side. I just want to understand something about the idea I accept the point, which... which wait, wait, I, I want to push back on your premise. Which one? The premise that <laughs> democracy is, is doomed because it will always serve interests. We I exist quite for say that. a so slightly exaggerated <laughs> version of what I said. They always have to make some claim about how this is in the public good. There is a media. There is... Yeah. The, 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 the mechanisms of democracy... Um, a, a lot, us having opinions about stuff uh, that is our one hope for constraining the, 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 the function of government in just, in just appearing to regulate in order to transfer resources. Yeah, but I would say that the growing size of the financial sector makes, one, it, makes it hard to be optimistic about the way that's working right now at least. Lots of sectors are big without being hugely regulated. It's the growing regulation of the financial sector, uh, and and the and it's getting more and more entwined. I mean, yeah. People I know at the Fed are saying, "Hey, John, it's good to see you." By the way, do you know that I just got this call from Goldman, and they want to give me, you know, X million dollars to come help them on the things that I was regulating them on last week. Gee, great! Uh, that, you know that 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 could get worse and worse if it doesn't yeah, get better. So I'm a little bit worried about that. But but I want to ask you about this particular proposal, which is, I I understand and agree that debt leverage is the reason that there are bank runs, but Financial institutions in general are intermediaries between people who want to borrow money and people who want to lend money, not people who want to play the stock market, etc. So how are you going to square that, get that square peg into a round hole? I'm confused. So uh, there's a great Chicago uh, booth theorem, the Modigliani-Miller theorem, yep. which sort of goes back to Casey Stengel, I think it was, who said, oh, uh, uh, cut the pizza only and uh, cut, the, cut it in 12 slices. I'm not that hungry tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bank assets turn into bank liabilities, and the total amount of risk that is provided, that is held by the private sector, uh, is the same no matter how you slice up that risk between debt and equity. So if you slice the risk up into lots more equity and lots less debt, that equity becomes much safer than current bank equity, and, and, and the debt uh, 
But so, now let me make this. I was citing the theorem. Let, let's make this real. What happens if you want something really safe? You're gonna. It's gonna look exactly like it looks today. You put your money in the bank, and just what's happening? The banks are holding a lot of treasury bills and and reserves at the Fed. Your deposits are gonna go into treasuries and reserves at the Fed, which back them 100. percent And, and I'm gonna get a very low return on, and on my low return. money for doing that. You want a little more return? You're gonna have to put a little more. You're gonna have to bear a little more risk. But the total amount of risk. Held by the private sector is exactly the same if you just slice it up a little bit differently. In fact, one way to do it is take this now, suppose the banks are 100% equity financed. That equity is very low volatility. It's very safe equity. It's, it's an equity claim on, on, on bonds. It's on people paying back their mortgages. On say. people paying back their mortgages, okay. which in a big pool of mortgages is very safe. Most of the time. That equity could be... No, 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 no. Even the subprime stuff paid off. <laughs> I mean, the, the, a long-only pool of mortgages is a really safe asset. That equity could be held downstream in a mutual fund that parcels it up into equity and debt. And that holding company, you could resolve in a, in a morning because its public, its assets are publicly traded equity, its liabilities are debt. Even if that's highly leveraged, we don't have to have the leverage in the bank. The leverage can be out of the bank, and you can blow that up in an afternoon. The problem when you blow up banks, and, and Ben Bernanke wrote the classic paper on this. The problem is when you blow up a bank, you blow up all that knowledge of how to make loans. That, that is what you don't want to do. So what you just described is very clever and very complex to the average person, right? How, how, what kind of steps could we take in actual policy to reduce the amount of, of debt that banks use and get us closer to that world in a way that might be feasible. Well, that's, so I'm, I'm an optimist. That's actually what's happening. Okay. Um, the, the, in early on after the financial crisis, all the regulars were saying, oh, you know, the banks, for them to have, uh, you know, instead of 31 to leverage, you know, 29 to 1 would be a disaster. And now they're going to capital, capital ratios, 2, 5, 10. Now they talk about 20 is fine. So we're moving to higher and higher levels of capital. People are understanding the Modigliani-Miller theorem that higher levels of capital are not a drag at all uh, on the bank, uh, and that they can operate with, uh, historically, they operated with 40% levels of capital. So we're just moving slowly to more and more capital. My hope is actually, uh, um, oh, and, and, and uh, th- th- there's a, one great proposal in Congress right now. If you have a lot of capital, then you're exempt from a lot of regulation. Oh, that's kind of nice. That's, a, that's, banks, that's simple. Banks, that, that you can explain, right? Banks right now say, oh, no, you know, if we have to hold capital... Hold, I'm sorry, I should never use that. If we have to issue a lot of capital, it's going to be a disaster. If you offer the banks... Oh, by the way, if you do this, you're exempt from blah, 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 the Dodd-Frank Act. Suddenly, oh, I think I can, we can find a way to issue yeah. all that capital. We'll just retain earnings for a little while longer. So uh, higher capital with a regulatory safe harbor. Let's stop subsidizing debt. Debt is interest... You can deduct debt from your taxes. If we got rid of the corporate tax, that would all be gone, by the way. You can deduct debt from your taxes. You can't deduct equity. Let's, you know, shift that around. Subsidize equity, not debt. At least get out of the way. Our banking regulation is a lot like our energy regulation. We say, oh, no, we don't want you borrowing a lot of money. By the way, we're going to subsidize you borrowing money. Right. It's the same thing we do with energy. Oh, you know, we subsidize gas prices, and then we want to regulate you against using a lot of gas. Um, so at least, you know, there's simple steps that can... And then I think the Dodd-Frank, if we don't have to repeal it, it could just kind of quietly float away. Well, you're <laughs> suggesting a really cheerful way to deal with these kind of problems is to pass a really hideous law 
and then uh, reward people who do something and they won't have to be subject to it. So <laughs> that sounds like a, it sounds like a, uh, a, a plan. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about what you think government should spend more money on or do more of rather than less of. It's a long silence. It's not, it's not crickets. I know you're thinking, and I, I know there's an answer to this. No, no, there, there, there are, are lots of things. So I think the government should, should um, recognize what it is actually spending. Uh, rather than saying, I'm going to force you to provide health insurance for your workers, I think it would be far better to, to, to recognize that as a taxing and spending. Uh, social programs, we, we didn't talk about, uh, you know, how do we get out of the, oh, we've got to spend more, you don't care. Oh, we've got to spend less, you're blowing, up, you're blowing up the future of your grandchildren. You know, we've got to get out of that. Uh, I think the problem with the social programs are their disincentives more than the amount of money we're spending on them. Uh, so, getting, so right now, the highest taxed Americans are poor people. And the reason they're highest taxed is because if they earn a dollar of income, they lose a dollar ten cents of their benefits, uh, facing you know horrendous uh, marginal effective marginal tax rates. Uh, now, the only way to, to, to get around that problem is is to be you know willing to spend more money to remove those marginal disincentives. But that helps people get out of the traps of social programs. Uh, and I. You know, there's still there's schizophrenics on the streets in Palo Alto. We should be spending money to help them. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this is, I think one of the answers for the social programs is is more generosity but limited time rather than limited money. I'm very unhappy with the way America is turning into a class society, and the class is defined by your income. Uh, your, your, your current income. We have low-income people, middle-income people, and high-income people. We talk about this as if it's forever rather than uh, the transitory state and where you are now. And in Palo Alto, you can get a, uh, a big reduction on your parking sticker if you're a low-income person. What, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> What's wrong with that? Uh, what's wrong with that is it increases classes of well, it's one more disincentive to not stop being low income, and it creates people who are in, in classes like we're an old aristocratic society. Well, I thought you were going to say that there's somebody who's a bad year gets cheap parking, and but then the next year they're going to make a lot more money. They're a student this year or something like that. Isn't that a part of the problem here of, of judging people by their current? Income. Yeah, and it's also part of the it's part of the insane complexity of the American system. If we really want to help poor people out, is 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 signing up for a cheap parking pass in your city and then ten thousand other special things yeah. the, the way the way to do it. no that that's that's silly. Uh, no, I think the government there's plenty of good things that the government uh, should do it, um, and, and we should accept that fact. My guest today has been John Cochran. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.